Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo sadanto suchedo ye hulahudi sanmeao sanputoshi. Namo sadanto suchedo ye the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. It's Saturday night, November 5th. We're here in Berkeley, California, and we're going to lecture on the Flower Garland Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. And uh, please, in your text, turn, if you will, to page... Uh, let's see, first of all, first of all, before we turn to that page, you've got to turn to the front cover of your Sutra text... We're going to chant the name of the sutra and also the names of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who bring us the sutra. And invoke their spiritual presence throughout chanting. So that's on the front cover in Chinese, and uh, try your try your hand with the romanization. Namo da fang fang po
starting this afternoon, we had one of our big rainstorms. First one, first couple big rainstorms of the year. Today is one of them. And, and uh, so I think folks are probably going to be uh, coming in a little late. Also, you're all aware completely that tomorrow is the end of daylight savings time. What did you think I was going to say, right? The end of life as we know it on the planet? Tomorrow, the end of oxygen. We'll have to make do with hydrogen starting tomorrow. No, tomorrow is back on the cycle of... And how does it work? Spring ahead, fall behind, which means we lose an hour, right? Right? Is that correct? So set the clocks ahead or no? Set the clock behind. So that means we gain an hour. We can sleep later. Nice. Okay. Which means you'll show up everywhere an hour early tomorrow until you adjust, right? Okay. That's all good news. And I hope you will, as I am about to do, flip off your... No, that's the wrong word. Uh, turn off your, your communications device, whatever it may be. Turn it off, indeed. And... Let's see here. Yes, tomorrow is, in fact. Um, I'm not going to get ahead of myself and announce, make the announcements until the end of the lecture, but there will be uh, a sutra lecture tomorrow morning. So, All right. We're on page 44 and 45 in our text. These are the the very last pages of our text so far. We'll be adding to our booklets this week. So we'll have more text. But we'll finish what we have today. And we also have uh, some wonderful stories from the... Acts of Kindness page to read some really inspiring stories. We're on the, uh, on page 44, we're on the, the bottom big paragraph. Pusa Rushu. If anybody likes, would like to hear a Vietnamese translation, there's a Vietnamese translation happening in, in the balcony. Okay, we ready? Pusa Rushi Jian Rulai Zhi Hui Wu Liang Li Yi Jian Yi Che Yu Wei Oh, this is Yu Wei, second tone. Jian Yi Che Yu Wei Wu Liang Guo Huan Good. All right. Over to the right, page 45. Thus the Bodhisattva sees such limitless benefits to the Tathagata's wisdom 
He sees the limitless disadvantages inherent in conditioned things. At that point, he has ten sympathetic thoughts for all beings. All right. Our sutra is um, telling us about bodhisattvas, these awakened beings. And we are on the third of ten explanations. This is called the Ten Grounds. And each ground is a set of instructions for uh, bodhisattvas to come and a set of explanations for bodhisattvas who are uh, currently practicing that way currently um, helping other people. So it's a big handbook. It's a set of, it's a doc file. It's the instructions, the, the manual for the Bodhisattva path. And as we're explaining it here, mind you, this text was first put into, first put into circulation in, in its Sanskrit form back in the 4th century. Although it was first spoken 900 years before that, but it didn't circulate for a long time. And then it was put into Chinese pretty quickly after that by the, the Jin dynasty, which was the, the, the 500s, the 6th century, then the Tang dynasty, which was the 700s, the 8th century. And it was in Chinese all those years. It went into Korean, went into Japanese. The Tibetans got a copy. It's in Mongolian. Um, but it only made it into English in the last 30 years. And so we're uh, handling a document that has been on the planet for one and a half millennia. It's been in, available to humanity, kind of in the, in the mix, in the heritage pool, in the deeper pool of wisdom. It's been there. But it wasn't available unless you spoke or read Asian languages, mostly read them. And people who were literate, able to read those languages, were fewer, fewer, fewer than, than you'd imagine. Not many people had the liberty to get out of the, the fields to go learn how to read. Mm, growing food for your family was the number one issue for 80-90% of the population. So people who learned to read had somehow managed to get spare time to study. So they were maybe monks, nuns, scholars, those rare folks who, who uh, found funding so they could go study. They didn't have to work in the fields. So, in other words, my point is to say this text was not widespread. Um, when it made it into Chinese, then um, the Chinese had been printing and distributing books for so long that libraries were common in China. You, the Chinese have been great librarians forever, making catalogs of books and then catalogs of catalogs. Um, so when it got to China and started circulating, then the sutra was uh, fairly, fairly, it was better known, but still not widespread, not what you call widespread. And then when people started to find out about this sutra, you know what they called it? They called it philosophy. They say this text is the most philosophical of Buddhist texts. Very hard to understand. And 
implicit in that is to say, so don't bother. You're not going to get it. It's too, too lofty, too vast, too high. Only philosophers or enlightened beings can understand it. Well, thank goodness our teacher, Master Shrenhua, didn't agree. And he said something very different. He said, you should take this text as a mirror. If you want to see what you really look like, look in the mirror. Take this text as instructions for how to get through the day. When stuff breaks, look here first. You'll find out what went wrong and how to fix it. So, in other words, he interpreted it very uh, close, not distant. He put it in people's hands and he put it in our hearts. He took it out of the sky, off of the shelf, uh, out of the, the conference room or the classroom, and said, you know, stick it in your bag because you're going to need it on the road. That's why Abhatamsaka Sutra translations ought to have a rubberized cover so they don't, when your fingers are dirty, when you're, you know, because you need it. Of course, I'm exaggerating, but it should have, it should be ready for use. That's really the way our teacher gave it to us. So when we see a passage like tonight, it's like, oh, huh. That doesn't sound very philosophical to me. What does it say? It says, the Bodhisattva, uh, last week, what did he do? Last week he was uh, looking at emptiness, at how things don't stick around. Everything that's made up of other stuff comes and goes. The problem is, if we attach to it while it's here, and then when it goes, we hurt. And then he said, everything in the world is that way. There's nothing that sticks. Mountains, planets, bodies come and go. You can't get them to stay. There's no... Human body does not come with a warranty on it. There's no money-back guarantee at all because it doesn't last. So he said, thank goodness that the Buddha described this. And the... the I'm sorry, the, the Buddha didn't say that. The Buddha told us about the nature of such things. Then the next thing he said was, there is dharma. Dharma means insight, wisdom, techniques as well for how to find meaning and sense in a world that's falling apart. So most of us want to find meaning. What's the point? Right? What's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? other than to make money, other than to, to keep your obligations, to, to feed yourself, dress yourself, amuse yourself. Beyond that, I mean, there's some people, well, that's enough. Just keep, it, keep ourselves amused until we die, um, until things go wrong. And then what do you do? Well, depends. Depends on, on how many resources you have available to you. Um, so... People who look at that and say, mm, there's got to be more. Is this all there is? Is this really all there is? Pursuing pleasure, running from pain my whole life long. And if you've ever asked yourself that question, you're on the very same path that the Buddha himself put himself on when he left the palace where life was mighty good. So the answers that he found was called Dharma collectively. That's what you do when things go wrong. Is you, you look into 
a way to work, first of all, with the receiver of the pain. That is to say, us. The Buddha's answer was always, look at you, look at yourself first, instead of looking outside and saying, the problem's out there. Because if you can fix what's wrong inside, you've got the root. If you only look outside, you're pursuing the leaves on the tips of the branches. Endless. Now they're turning yellow and red and falling to the ground. But how many are there? There's always more. There's endless branch tips to pursue, but there's one root. And if you can turn it back and find that root inside, then you have a chance of using the Dharma to make sense. And one of the ways to make sense of pain and suffering when when things go wrong, it takes a strong will to do it. But what you do is you take a look at the thing that's hurting and you analyze it into its component parts and realize that there's nothing there. There's nothing inherently in the me that's, that's hurting to hurt can't find it and you look and that's why he says you know you analyze you look deeply into it you discover it's all moving on so what hurts that's the mystery wow it, it's you know and a broken heart when your heart is broken it's like you don't want to breathe and there's just pain in your chest and it seems like you know life isn't worth living and right then the Buddha says uh-huh that's how do you how do you experience that feel that that's really painful to take one step to the left and say, well, what is it actually that feels pain? Five minutes before you got that phone call, it wasn't hurting. So what was in the phone call that suddenly triggered the pain? And and you look at it analytically, very rationally, very clearly. And in that exercise of clear seeing, not fuzzy, not philosophical, not abstract, not theoretical, really looking at where it hurts, you discover... What was hurting? Well, what was hurting was the expectation of something that was coming that I didn't get. Well, what was different when you didn't get it? Well, my feelings were hurt. Well, find one of those feelings. Um, Where is it located? Well, it's located um, in my stomach. Okay, so what part of the stomach is you that felt bad? You look in and you start unraveling. After a while, you have to take another perspective and realize that... This is more than you thought. It's layers and layers of identity and desire and projection and the self that you just keep can't find. It keeps changing. And it's like, hey, you know what? That's better than aspirin. That actually gives me some leverage on my experience of pain. What what is there in there? Who is there who feels pain? Who is that? You know? Now, sometimes, you don't, sometimes it hurts too bad. You don't have the time to, to do that kind of analysis. It's just, you know, you've got to wait till tomorrow morning or something till you stop crying. But there is a time when you, the clouds part and you get a chance to look carefully. And when you look, what you realize is, You've learned something about the nature of pain and the self. Because why? It's really yours. 
This is really yours. You did it yourself. It's not an expert. It's not dad. It's not God. It's not a shrink, a psychoanalyst. Analyst. It's you looking directly into the heart of everything you've been afraid of and realizing that, hey, it's not what I thought. It's all made up of pieces. It's all constructed identity. Who is that? And you are face to face with one of the basic mysteries of life. Thank you, Buddha, for giving me at least a door to walk through, to look at that. Okay, and this is just one window, which is called what? Which is impermanence. He's showing us that all things move on. Waitley gets to not-self. We haven't even heard the teaching on no-self. And then when he gets to the, the teaching of emptiness, it's deep. And through that door, you get to liberation. It's the same path that you're walking on. But my point is just to say that when our teacher gives us instructions and says, you know what, this sutra, take it off the, the, the shelf labeled Asian philosophy and put it in your bag. And you should put on an RX, you know, Rexall medicine. That's where this belongs. It's healing insight for what hurts us the most. So you say, okay, I don't have heartache. What do I have? My mom died. What have you got? Oh, well, uh, I got fired. Got a pink slip out of the blue. What have you got? Oh, I got a diagnosis of cancer. Ooh. You know, out of zero to ten on life scales of disasters, those are all nines. Right? Same method, same practice, same path, same insight, which is you realize that the thing that I thought was hurting is not what I thought it was. It hurts, but it hurts Actually, that hurt, that pain is really elusive. I can't really grab it. It keeps moving around. So what did I think was hurting? It's, that's really interesting. And the actual work of looking at it that way, because that's the, that's the source of the pain. You're on the, the, the abscess. You're right on it. The, the rotten tooth. You're right there on it. The act of looking into it relieves some of the pressure. What goes away first? The fear of it goes away. And you realize that that's what's hurting. And I don't have to be afraid of it because why? Number one, I can't find it. It hurts, but it keeps moving. And it's not what I thought. It's like, do my teeth hurt? What in the tooth hurt? Do the nerves hurt? What is it? And the fear goes away, and the source of the pain keeps moving, and you get room to breathe. And the more we look at it, the better we get at finding that and the more courage we get to actually look at what hurts. And you realize, hey, I got a handle on this. It's not what I thought. You know? And all of the other stuff that you use, the, the shopping therapy, the TV therapy, the alcohol therapy, the drug therapy, all becomes obstacles to the thing that made it feel better, which was clear seeing. And you put those things aside because why? I don't want to waste time like trying to postpone the pain. I want to look at it because looking at it made it feel better. 
right? And that's, this is all called cultivation. So how cool to have dharma in, a, in your hand, you know, and to have it labeled therapy for what hurts. Ultimately, it's the same path to liberation. When you finally wake up to the constructed nature of me and mine in the world around me, like, oh, hey, that's how the Buddha got free. I mean, why else would he have leapt over the palace wall, as the story goes, and turned his back on everything that everybody else wanted? Right? Siddhartha gave up everything that was supposed to be the best stuff, everything, in exchange for very uncomfortable life with mosquitoes out in the woods. And these teachers who were teaching him how to hang from a tree limb by his legs, you know, upside down, and teachers who were teaching him how to fast until he died, and, and bad dharmas. He, he learned bad methods, which he mastered and discarded every time, until he hit on this method, which was look deeply into the source of what's hurting and find out that it's made of other stuff. It's a component pain. It's a, it's a, uh, a what do they call it? It's a accessory pain. It's not, it's, it's called yowefa. It's made of other stuff. It's not what I thought. Okay, so he sees that, and it says, last week, he increases his distaste for all conditioned things, and he approaches the wisdom of a Buddha. He goes, yeah, wow, the Buddha Dharma actually is the blueprint to ending the misery. Thus, the Bodhisattva sees limitless benefits to the Tathagata's wisdom and the limitless disadvantages inherent in conditioned things. Could I ask, having heard uh, the last two lectures on the nature of component things, um, he sees them as they really are, such as impermanent suffering, impure, having no peace, subject to destruction, not lasting long, coming and going in an instant, okay, how they can't be saved, relied upon, how they lead to worry and troubles. Did anybody, having heard that, look at your world any differently last week or the week before? Did any of this stick? Sometimes after I hear these lectures, the sutras kind of like, gets like an earworm, you know, gets stuck in the loop. And then you look at, you look at your face in the mirror when you're having a bad makeup day and you'd like you go, oh, come on, you know. It's just not worth all the effort and expense to make it look never quite right, you know. Anybody have an experience? You can, yeah, what happened, Nancy? Not, not to put you on the spot. What's that? Nothing. Nothing, okay. She pointed at you. So. Yeah. Quit getting me into trouble. Joel? What happened? What happened? <laughs> was it one of those Japanese toilets that are heated and soft? And no? It was hard, but I thought, like, oh, yeah, that would disintegrate too. So even hard things there. Right, 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 right. What I was pointing to, what Jung said was that he, he heard me one, one time a couple pages ago. I pointed to the glass. The, the, tape, the top of my table has got a layer of glass here. And it's made up of sand, fused sand. 
and glass, if you heated it hard enough, it would melt right now. But that, that's what you're referring to. And he says he, thinking of that, he went into the bathroom and looked at the toilet bowl and saw the porcelain. Yeah, it just looks softer. The, 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 the dolly painting the It was soft like a dolly painting, <laughs> melting toilet seat. Wow. He... Yeah, yeah, right. Well, there you go. It, it'll take, you know, toilet seats tend to be in the landfill a little longer, but, you know, for sure. Did you all see the, um, in front of Steve Jobs' house, there was a spontaneous little altar. Somebody put an old iPod down there, a broken iPod with a We Love You, Steve, or something like that, or RIP. And it was, and it had covered with flowers and raindrops and stuff. And, and there was, you know, a piece of technology that somebody lusted after, paid Three hundred dollars for at one point, probably two hundred fifty, and there it was in front. Now it was just the carrier of words because it was the dial was twisted and broken. So luxury, when luxury goods go bad, you really see that. You see the nature of our projection onto this as valuable object, when in fact now it's landfill. Yeah. Anybody else have experience with impermanence? The sutras have a funny way of really um, touching a strand or a, a strata of our natures and like plucking a note, you know, kind of a... These the sutras arise out of the nature and sometimes one of those, just one of those sentences can do it. It's funny how it'll do it in Chinese, it'll do it in English. Because this is pre-language. These principles are there before it comes into grammar, before it comes into Zhongwen or Francais or Nihongo or English. It's, it's hardwiring in the core of our nature. So. Okay, so maybe somebody will <coughs> have that experience. The Bodhisattva looks at the Tathagata's wisdom and says, hey, that actually helps. He sees that limitless disadvantages inherent in conditioned things, and what happens? Sympathy. This is where the sutra is really not philosophy. Sympathy happens. The Bodhisattva's heart bumps. He gets a, she gets a twinge in her heart as she thinks about all the conditioned things that go bad, things made up of other things that fall apart, and how as soon as you unwrap them with the Dharma, you can free yourself from the part of the pain and misery of attachment. And he sees that people don't, they don't, we don't. Having the Dharma right there to explain this, we don't do it. We're like sick people who get medicine prescribed and then don't take it and stay sick. So he feels sympathy. And then we're going to get ten kinds of sympathy that happen here. Notice it doesn't say, and the Bodhisattva uh, feels 
superior to living beings. The bodhisattva feels living beings are utter dumbheads. Bodhisattva looks at living beings and says, you idiots, how, how stupid you are. Doesn't say that. Instead, what does he do? He, uh, she feels sympathy. Why? This is coming up next. What are they? Okay. He sees that all beings are alone with no refuge and he feels sympathy. Okay, we get ten kinds of experiences that cause the Bodhisattva to feel I mean. I is a kind of grief mean is empathy, is a feeling with. It's an interesting um, uh, character, mean. The, um, the one underneath is heart. The picture of an of a actual heart organ. But it refers, of course, to, this, to the feeling heart. And then the mean on top is actually a phonetic but the left-hand side means people or populace. Renmin, Zhonghua Renmin. So it's the heart with the people, although technically it's a phonetic sound, but um, it's that feeling of putting your heart with them. So that's where empathy comes from, is feeling with. You feel with them. And... He sees that all beings are lonely with no refuge. That's the first one. Anybody uh, listen to country music? All right. Country music? Not recommending it. Unless you want to do some cultural anthropology. If you're doing a research project on what makes Americans American, American culture, listen to country music. You'll get a probably a closer description of what makes us tick than a year at Cal, I suspect. Um, country music in one hour if you go to 92.9 on your FM dial, but it's Sonoma County. It's called Froggy 92.9. Twelve in a row country music. Twelve in a row without ads, which is a good thing. And in, within one 12 in a row cycle of country music hits, you're going to find most of the things that the sutra points to, that the bodhisattva hears and feels sympathy one of the main topics that comes up in country songs is I'm alone. Lonely. And there's, you know, 32 flavors of being alone. Just, oh my goodness. It's one after the other. And it includes such things as waking up in the morning and not finding her head on the pillow, but a note. <laughs> and she's left him. 
because he's a no-good, rotten, boot-scooting, pickup-driving, dog-teaming, boot-beer-drinking, no-good nothing for nothing. No good, you know. So she left him. And, boy, probably she should have, you know. <laughs> no one, you know, probably should have left him sooner. Anyway, so he's alone, and he's thinking how he got to get her back. And so there's, you know, that's one of the flavors. Another one is reverse it. She's the one singing, and he left her because, why? He's a no-good, beer-strigging, boot-scooting, you know. So... Guys come in for a lot of grief in country songs these days. Maybe they should. Maybe it's time guys wake up. But anyway, so lots of lonely. Another one. There's occasional songs about she, she or he dies, right? And it's always at the worst moment, and and he hopes he'll see her up in heaven. Say again. Once again. Is that this really happened? It's not a song, right? It's a song. Okay. Shania Twain, one of our stars, singing about having a baby at 15 and dad would never forgive her, right? Real. Now, where did that song come from? Out of somebody's imagination? No, it's because it's happening. That's painful. And so not only has she, I mean, when you're 15, what do you know when you're 15? You're 15 and you have responsibility for another life. You're a mom, and your dad boots you out because you lost his face for him, right? There's a flavor of lonely. Country music will bring that to you over here, into your car as you drive on the freeway. So, anyway, just to say, country music does lonely really well. Not only country music, pop music, right? Music, music. Doesn't matter the nation, the culture, the age. Being lonely, we sing when, it's lonely, when we're lonely, to feel better. It's the cause of lots of blues. My baby done left me, I'm fixing to die. Right? And, and you sing that line about six times. My baby done left me, I'm fixing to die. And then, for a change, the third line, My baby done left me and I'm fixing to die. Right? <laughs> and the fourth line, right, never mind. You got it. So, that's pain, right? And you play because you hurt. What does the Bodhisattva do when he hears this? He goes, oh, that hurts a lot. Feels sympathy. Totally understands the pain the living beings experience. So loneliness. Now, um, I might suggest... That, notice the second part of the sentence, with no refuge. We, what do you do when you hurt like that, when you're lonely? One thing is you go find shelter. You find somebody to, e here is also for ekal, to lean on. You find somebody or something to lean on, something that won't tip over. Now that might be Mom. Might be dad, if you have that mom or dad available to you. Might be a big brother. 
might be a big sister, might be a religious authority figure, minister, priest, rabbi, dharma master, might be a friend. Right? Hope it's not alcohol. Many, many people, when it hurts bad, first thing they do is go for the bottle. Bad refuge, unreliable refuge, winds up compounding the problem. Some people go to their community. They go to find their friends because they know that their friends will take them in. They won't be lonely. It'll get them through the crisis. Right? Other people find refuge in religious practice. When it hurts, they go bow. Or they put their hearts on Amitabha and just recite. And the reciting Namo Omitofo, the Buddha of Limitless Light, brings them to a place way beyond the ups and downs of romantic connection or loss of a loved one, all the things that can make us lonely. Right? When you recite the Buddha's name, you realize, hey, I have deeper levels of identity than the immediate emotional one. I have levels of family that were just waiting for me to discover. Real, not, not imagination. Right? So some people t- find refuge in religious connection. Uh, some people pray to Jesus. Some people go to Mecca. The Hajj is happening today, I think. It's the, last, the final day in, in Mecca. So people go to different places for refuge. Here, the Bodhisattva sees that this particular person got nowhere to go. Lonely and nowhere to go. And feels sympathy. So not only did something break, but you don't have any place safe. All right? Now, um, we could... This is a... um, we could talk about the, the refuges offered in Buddhism, and that would be a, you know, that's, that's an available thing to talk about. In that when you do what's called taking refuge, you get a spiritual connection to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and usually to also to a teacher or to a community. And that's different for everybody. Some people take that very seriously and having taken refuge something changes they are peaceful in their hearts they lose their worries because they know that it's real and having once taken refuge you for example they say you don't fear falling into the three evil destinies the hells the animals becoming a ghost that you'll return as a human or a a deva or you'll be able to cultivate to awakening. So, other people take refuge, and it's kind of, yeah, I did. I remember I did that, and that was a good feeling, and I forgot about it immediately. You know, I remember it once a year on Buddha's birthday. Okay, that's, a lot of people are like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's, certainly you're not, you're not taking advantage of some of the deeper things available to you having taken refuge. So, um, that's 
wanting to talk about. So what is, where do you go for refuge? A lot of people I know go to refuge in money. That making a lot of money makes them feel safer. And there's something to that. That if you um, have money, you have like levels of insulation from the um, from the the real immediate impact on your body of pain. So, for example, if you get arrested in downtown Oakland, um, if you have money and you can call a lawyer, you spend less time on a cold cell uh, being denied bathroom access without a phone call. Because uh, why? You could bail yourself out quickly. You had a lawyer. If you are a young person who's idealistic and joined the, the protest in Oakland out of a sense of something happening, something changing, excitement, solidarity with a movement, wanting to feel a bigger identity, chances are you don't have much insulation between that cold cement floor or the policeman's club or the, the tie handcuffs cutting into your wrists. So money can buy you layers of insulation so that things protect you before you actually feel the wood of the club hitting your skull. But um, ultimately, the Buddha would say, um, how you interpret this living being, the living beings here feeling lonely, um, you could say, if you look really deeply into the nature of our lives, there is no refuge. I remember, I told this story before, um, when I was 15, uh, 14, I, I loved to read. I was a great reader. And I had a chair in my bedroom where I would sit and read. It was my reading chair. And it was, the, uh, it was against a window. And the window was facing um, west. And it was on the second floor. And Toledo has lots of trees. So the sec- up above, there were mostly trees. And I remember particularly, it was this time of year. It was October, November. And I was reading, I think it was Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And uh, there's a scene at the very end where, um, who's the hero? Not McNulty. The, forget the name of the hero. In the story, the, he uh, finally comes to grief. And there's the last scene of the book, a seagull starts to spiral up from the ocean and it flies up and up and up and Kesey describes it really beautifully and you see the perspective of the bird just circling up into the limitless sky and it's um, the the hero has just uh, he, he died instead of what did he do? He took the blame and so that chief could go free. I forget. Anyway, but it's, it's a very moving moment of liberation of a spirit from oppression. And I remember 
following. I was so moved by that. I was following it. And I had this experience of suddenly feeling that I was way up high beyond the atmosphere looking back down on the planet and the country and the state of Ohio and the city of Toledo and my little reading chair, looking back down and realizing that my parents were not my parents. And right at that moment, my dad came home from work, parked his car in the garage, and my mother was cooking dinner, and I could smell the, the food on the stove and hear the sounds of my dad closing the car door and pulling the garage door down and coming in. And I, uh, I realized that even though my parents were there, good parents, you know, had them there, that they likewise didn't have any parents. Ultimately, I was totally on my own to figure out my life. And I was seeing around me this boundless space and realizing that I came from conditions and one of those conditions was having this set of parents and that I was moving on and I didn't belong to them. I was not theirs. No more than they belonged to their parents and their parents belonged to their parents and their parents. That it was just conditions. And around me was this total, utter ocean of space. There was no guarantee whatsoever that of anything. It all depended on what I did. And it was this, you know, existential moment of total, utter void, V-O-I-D, void emptiness. And then I was boom, back in my body and uh, went down to dinner and gave my mother a hug, and we're, you know, Irish-Scottish family, you don't do that from Canada. We're not, we're not huggers in, in that culture, not like Italians, you know, or Spanish, not. So it's kind of like, yes, Mom, yes, Dad, you know, handshake or pat on the back, but you don't hug much. And my mother was, what's wrong with you, you know? And I said, Mom, I'm, Mom, I'm so glad you're here, you know? She said, is he okay, you know? So it was, uh, you know, the sense of, of having my parents be a gift in the midst of this emptiness. And yet, um, basically, I was completely, utterly alone, and so was everyone else. That was the funny thing, was I connected immediately that there's nobody who is not cosmically alone. And that if you want to find the glue that holds one cell together that you call body or me it's just behavior it's karma holds us together repeated behavior other than that nothing why was i born in laos why was i born in hong kong why was i born in saigon why was i born in toledo why was i born in taipei you know it's like uh hmm got to look into that some kind of connection. But ultimately, when this body is done, there's no guarantee except what I do. Repeated action or karma is the 
map that I'm drawing as I go. We're drawing our maps as we go for our next destination. That was an amazing thing. And it's, it's not so much the power of the book, because later I had a similar experience reading a book called Exodus. Leon Uris, U-R-I-S. Anybody read Exodus about the, the birth of the state of Israel? That was, it was made in a movie later. Powerful book. Same experience. Uh, very, plus, as I read both of these, I determined I wanted to be a novelist. Because to be able to write books that launch young people's imagination into awareness of, of where they actually came from, that's the power of good writing. I really wanted to be a writer. When I, if I could do that for other people, you know, having had that experience. So um, that was uh, profoundly scary, but because when I came back, here was dinner on the stove and both my parents there, you know, TV to watch and homework to do. And I had a guitar, studying classical guitar. So like the body was still right there with all the senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. But I never forgot that moment. I can call it back in an instant, that sense of just, you know, being completely alone, ultimately, truly alone, with nothing to stick together except what I do, for better and for worse at the same time. So So the Bodhisattva sees beings alone with no refuge, and he feels sympathy. Now, at that point, I didn't know. I had never heard about Buddhism at that point. I didn't know about my teacher. I didn't know about uh, the Dharma. But within six months, I found myself doing yoga all by myself in my bedroom in between playing basketball and, you know, trying out for the cross-country team. I was doing yoga. And then uh, I met the Six Patriarch Sutra uh, in the library. Then just six months of that. So Funny how... how uh, we connect with these principles that the Bodhisattva is announcing. So, what else? Uh, let's see. Next one. Jian zhu zhong sheng pin chong kun fa sheng ai mi qing. He sees that all beings are poor and destitute, and he feels sympathy. All right. Not all, right? And it's all relative. Some people if they got a really, really good harvest of apples this year, or grapes, might not have money in the bank, but they've got this wealth of a good harvest. You know, somebody else might feel that they have a healthy baby girl, even as, a nie- as an auntie, a healthy niece, and they feel wealthy, rich. Other people might be sitting right where you are or listening to this lecture on your computer somewhere or a lecture later uh, in the archive, and you might be healthy. And you think, man, having good health is the ultimate wealth. Money can't buy it, right? You just experience the joys and the riches of a healthy body and a healthy mind. 
and absolutely true. In the play Porgy and Bess, Gershwin, George Gershwin, Porgy, this guy who's lost his legs, he's half a man, he has to ride around on a cart pulling himself by his hands. Because his heart is happy and satisfied, he says, I got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me. Got the stars at night. Who's worrying? I got what I need. Folks with plenty of plenty, they got a lock on the door, afraid somebody's going to rob them blind while they're out making more. What for? He says. So, that's Porgy, George Gershwin is really saying it. So Porgy, in the mouth of this cripple, lives in a port city in Louisiana. He says, what's the point of having plenty when all it does is make you afraid that you're going to lose it and you have to run out and get more all day long? That's profoundly poor, even though you got stuff. Your spirit is poor. So the Bodhisattva here is pretty clearly talking about spiritual wealth. Right? So, now, if we don't have enough, if for sure we're hungry... Oh, I read interesting. Um, the, uh, somebody did a survey going out talking to homeless folks, and they compiled lots of interviews and discovered that for most homeless people, of the various kinds of of pain and suffering and discomfort, they ranked them. And they they discovered that number one most pressing need to solve is cold. If you're cold, pretty much nothing else matters. Because illness is on the way. You start to shiver. Your brain just... you, You get tired quickly because you're burning up your body's fuel to stay warm. So warmth is really essential. That will, you can, if you're hungry, you can bear it. If you're alone, you can bear it. But if you're cold, it's really hard to take. So anybody else feel moving? Not? Maybe it's me. Okay. We had an earthquake this afternoon and I started to feel something. Okay. Um, so, that's in the rank of problems to solve. Cold is number one. If you're really cold, can't do much else. So, um, that's that's interesting description. The Bodhisattva says, living beings are poor and destitute. And what does he do? He feels sympathy. So, so it's relative, isn't it? Um, I stayed with friends. I'm going to sneeze here. (coughs) I stayed with friends who were rich enough to have to worry about being kidnapped. Um, Worry about their kids being kidnapped. And I think I told this story not too long ago. I was fascinated because I was inside their house for three or four days 
and watched the, the levels of security that it takes for them to feel safe. And very much I got the feeling that I was in a jail cell looking out. Because there, there was electronic surveillance all the time. There were drivers and bodyguards anytime they wanted to leave. There were, uh, um, you couldn't answer the phone. Just answer it. You had to pass through, you know, uh, security arrangements. When you wanted to leave the house, you had to tell the head of security that you were going. Everywhere you went, you had people watching you, you know. And then when it comes to the money, of course, I didn't get close to that, but I heard them talk about the lawyers, bankers, accountants, executives, all employed to deal with their wealth. And you never had a minute's rest wondering who was being dishonest, who was ripping you off. Could you really trust your accountant from cooking the books and reporting figures somewhere along the line to take one percentage point out of every transaction or something. So it's like free, you know, past the basics. It's there's this wonderful correlation. A book came out of Yale university about happiness. Um, And it said, showed in a very convincing argument, that um, everybody needs the basics. Food and drink, clothes to cover the body and the seasons, shelter, something over your head to keep the wind off and the bugs away and the sun away. And then you needed medicine when you were sick. Four requisites. Uh, This is, we're talking physical, physical requisites. If you don't have those, you're oppressed. You have to solve that one before other stuff happens, before you can really have the time to be kind and generous at all. So clothes and drink, food, food and drink, clothes, shelter, and medicine are the basics. And what this study saw was that past those basics, like here's two correlation lines, right? If as the basics went to luxury, the happiness didn't grow. So happiness, happiness in your life, keeps pace with your stuff to a certain point, to where you're comfortable, your needs are met. As soon as your material well-being starts to go into excess and luxury, the happiness does not follow it. The happiness exists independent of the stuff past a certain point. So that was uh, really powerful to see it on a graph. You know, it's true. Stuff, what do they say? Money can't buy me love, can't buy me love, right? The Beatles, who knew that they were speaking Buddha Dharma, right? So you get your Dharma where you can. So money can't buy me love, right? It's true. It's like, yeah, it doesn't hit the spot. More stuff doesn't solve the problem. If you're looking for happiness, more stuff doesn't solve the problem. Past a certain point. And everybody will tell you that. But we, where's the point where we are able to say, I got enough, thank you. Don't need, that's okay, no, I'm I'm happy. 
you know, pass it on. Ooh, that's hard. That's hard. Somebody who can really do that is free. Free of that pressure to get more and more and more and more and more and more and more. The culture will tell you that's the path to happiness. In fact, research and the sutras say not so. So he sees that living beings are poor and destitute and he feels lonely. Poor and destitute has nothing to do with your bank account. You can have lots and lots of stuff, but be spiritually totally poor and needy. Needy for validation as a human, for approval, for being liked, for love, things that motivate people. So he sees all beings are poor and destitute, and he feels sympathy. How interesting. Right? So... Is this philosophy? No. This is where we live. This is real life stuff. And the sutras are so good at saying it in a, in a way that makes it come alive. So, number three. Literally, sees all multitude-born that is to say, beings, three poisoned fires burning and experiences a feeling of grief and connection, sadness and connection. Burned by the three poisons. You don't think of the poisons as being a fire, so it's um, burned is probably the best, not the best translation. Something like uh, wounded, scorched, um, made miserable. That would be good. Made miserable by the three poisons. Three poisons. Greed, anger, hatred, and delusion. Those are the three poisons. Um, I have an amazing story to tell. Sometimes you just see this so clearly. Uh, this afternoon, uh, three of us went over to to the Cal campus, and uh, there was a book launch. A book finally was published called Infinite Vision, and it's the story of an Indian doctor, eye doctor, named uh, Dr. Ar- um, Venkateswami, Dr. V, they call him. His name is too long. He's Dr. V. Dr. V, at age 58, retired from making money, and he had rheumatoid arthritis, made his fingers like this. You know, it's a really crippling disease. So what did he decide to do? He was an entrepreneur, very successful, rich businessman. But he decided that he wanted to make a difference in life. So he looked at India, where there are uh, 200 million people who have eye disease, either blindness or cataracts or uh, glaucoma. He decided he was going to do something about it. 
So he learned how to do eye surgery and personally performed 100,000 cataract operations for free on poor people in India using instruments with his fingers like this to, to do the delicate eye surgery. That's after he retired. Now, he was so successful in this that he uh, inspired members of his family. In his extended family, there are now 20 ophthalmologists, eye doctors, who do eye surgery. He has created the system of delivering eye care to the poor people of India. They do 300,000 eye surgeries a year for free, unless people can pay, in which case they have them pay it forward. They pay for other people to get eye surgery. He has uh, done, they have now, his goal was to do what? His goal was to end eye disease because they discovered that 80% of the eye disease in the world is needless, is curable if you get a simple operation. And it's outpatient stuff. Patients rest a night after getting the surgery. And so they had this whole, he made this vow that he was going to end eye disease as best he could. And he has now done it to an amazing degree. Not only creating in his extended family 20, 20 ophthalmologists in his, you know, his sons, or his, his he, he never married but his, his nieces and nephews and, and uh, the children in his immediate family, 20 eye doctors. But he has created this method of, it's like assembly line, eye surgery. And imagine 300,000 a year through his, his um, vows and his vision uh, get immediate relief. And, you know, if, if you suddenly you can see again, what that means is you can go back to work. You can cook again. You can take care of your children again because you couldn't see. So, and he, he does this. Most of India's population is rural. And today we heard the story of how he, uh, Dr. Venkatswami, wanted to, he, he did this, he got all his efforts together and he discovered that they had affected 7% of the people who needed eye treatment in India. He said, we failed, that's not enough. Well, when most of the people live out in the, in the uh, villages, there are no doctors out there. Who's gonna do eye surgery? And nobody knows to come to see you. So he came to Berkeley and got a grad student to, do, to create a wireless telemedicine system that allows a doctor sitting in Madurai, sitting in Delhi, sitting in Bangalore, to using uh, a Wi-Fi system in the clinics that he set out, using village girls who are trained to do the diagnosis and the correct, uh, um, you know, talking to the, the local villagers in their language. He can deliver medical services that were impossible before, and now 80% particularly in certain areas, of the, uh, med- of the eye disease that was available to be treated has been treated. So 
because this young graduate student delivered this telemedicine. Um, anyway, totally incredible. Eric, that was, you, that was moving, right, this story. So Pavi, people know Pavi. Um, she is uh, Vero's wife. She and a colleague wrote the book about her granduncle, Dr. Venkatswami, Dr. V. And uh, he says that the, the, uh, the number one thing to do in human life is to reach out motivated by compassion to help other people because why? By doing that, you are helping yourself. By healing other people, you are healing yourself. So Dr. V was profoundly spiritual. And when you hear him say it, you know, it's just so... It, everybody in the room was just, you know, uh, awestruck with the, the obvious truth of this bodhisattva-like doctor's message. And I immediately flashed to Wall Street. <laughs> what? You did what? Yes, I immediately thought of Wall Street, where the ethos is take them for all you can because you can. Take as much as you can legally or illegally because you can. It doesn't matter if things break for them because I got all I could. Try to stop me. You know, and I just saw those two ideas side by side in my mind, and I thought, the ethos of greed, one of the three poisons, is so impoverished. It's a wrong view, and it can't sustain. The, uh, what did I write it? I wrote down um, one of the lines that came up this afternoon as we were sitting there, which is creating a world that works for all. The greed of typified by Wall Street. It's not limited to Wall Street. It's in Bank of America. Anybody switch your bank account today, by the way? This was switch your bank account day. One way to actively participate in Occupy Wall Street, take your money and business away from B of A, Citibank, uh, Chase, not to name them. I don't want to name them. We're not doing politics here. Wells Fargo, the top six, right? And put your, take your bank business to a local credit union. Take your bank business to a small local bank that did not take your money and go off and invest in foreign governments and take your money and go knowingly bundle it with toxic assets that were not going to pay off so that you and your grandparents lose their pensions, you know, and then charge you for a debit card transaction, you know. So this was a one, one way to actually take part in this making a world that works for everybody. The one versus the 99% is the world works really well for the 1%. They are winning if greed, anger, and delusion are the rules of our lives. Our country has gone to a place where 
Greed is legal. It's protected by law. It's even protected by clubs, right? Greed, anger, and delusion is legislated. And here you have, you know, where somebody works very hard all their lives and their money is put into social, you know, services, wealth, not, it's put into social security, which is what? It's what you're going to live on when, you're, when you retire. In other words, grandpa, grandma, how are they going to get through the days when they don't work? Well, they've lost a little bit of their paycheck, every paycheck, into a fund that was going to come back to them. Well, the people who make the laws are calling that entitlements, meaning not theirs. They belong instead to somebody else. Funny, huh? How it's framed. Well, that's the system where greed, anger, and delusion rule the land. And they might legally still take it away. We'll see between now and November what happens to entitlements like pensions. Health care. Why is health care an entitlement? Funny. Medicare, Medicaid. So just to say, no opinion on it. I'm not judging it. I'm just saying we live in a world where greed, anger, and delusion, the three poisons, have poisoned our national discourse. And seeing Dr. V and what he has done to pushing against something real. Anybody have cataracts? Anybody have glaucoma? Or know somebody in your family who's lost their eyesight? If you lose your eyesight, a lot of your world stops, right? Take that white cane, tap, tap. If you're poor, if you live rurally, you depend on a grandchild when they're available to walk you to the market, or else you don't go to the market. Might as well die if you can't see. Dr. B comes along for free, makes a few cuts, your eyes come back. Man, oh man. And he's done that for free for millions of people now. Millions of people have benefited directly from this man's incredible vision with his fingers twisted up by a disease. Didn't stop him. He started after his fingers were twisted up. Pretty astounding. So just seeing those face side by side, I realized how come we have made compassion considered what? Uh, fuzzy. Compassion means you're a loser. It's the idea that you give to someone else, that helping them helps you. That's what he said. By helping others, we directly help ourselves. By healing others, we become healed. When I heard that, it was so obvious that that's true. That's just clear. That's clear seeing the way it actually is. The notion of greed is a poison. It poisons us into thinking that we're alone and that getting over on people is the goal. If I take more, it's mine. And I got, it's my share. It's just not true. Nothing sustains that, that view. And yet, that's the prevailing political, economic ethos currently alive in our world. How funny that we've let ourselves stray so far from true seeing. He sees beings poisoned by the three poisons and he feels sympathy. 
So what a powerful message. A world that works for all instead of for the few. All right. So that's, um, we're going to add to our texts this week. That's our translation so far. And uh, we'll be putting our booklets together. And could, um, could we do something this week? Do you have one of these at home? If you do, and some people have asked for them, and that's fine. It's not, you know, it's, it's fine if you do. Could you bring it in so we could bind it, so we could add to it? If for any reason. And maybe we want to make a few more from the start next time, because we're, we're always right at the edge of our sutras. But um, it would be great if you could bring it in sometime during the week so we can add the next chunk to it and update it. Because, you know, these are growing as we go. We're... When we're done, we're going to have volumes of the Ten Grounds. Want a sutra? Boom. Can I get the digital version? Click. CD. All right. Can we transfer the merit first and then uh, get some announcements going?
be c